Welcome to the Restless Hearts Podcast, a podcast dedicated to spiritual reflections and conversations about our journey together as human beings. I'm Father Ray DeLugos, an Augustinian friar serving at Merrimack College as the Vice President for Mission and Ministry. In the preceding Restless Hearts Podcast, I began a series of reflections on the 12 statements of faith in the series we call We Believe in You that express what our tradition tells us that God believes about us. That first reflection was on the statement, you are God's beloved child in whom God is well pleased and ecstatically delighted. This episode will offer some thoughts on the statement that says, you exist in love, through love, and for love. This statement attempts to tell us where, how, and why we have our life and being from the point of view of the one who has given us that life, and holds us in our existence. The theologian Michael Himes has written in his book, Doing the Truth in Love, that if there was ever a moment that our Creator did not love us, we would simply cease to exist. Therefore, it may be possible to say that the very fact that we are at all is all the evidence we need to know that this statement is true, and so accept its challenge to love just as we are loved. But I wonder how this statement really strikes anyone who hears it or sees it on a poster. I imagine, perhaps wrongly, that many of us find this statement really hard to believe based on our lived experience. Given the stress, tension, and frustration of the past several months, we might find it more credible if it said, you exist in fear, through fear, and for fear. Or maybe you exist in uncertainty and doubt, through uncertainty and doubt, and for uncertainty and doubt. Another strong possibility might be you exist in struggle, through struggle, and for struggle. We might use many other words such as stress, anxiety, despair, futility, anger, injustice, victimization, and sadness to describe how we actually experience our existence. But surely a God who is love did not bring us into existence just so that we would have all of those hard experiences. Each of those are the result of human choices to make existence painful for others and sometimes for ourselves. They are so pervasive that it is very hard to believe that there is anything more. But a life of faith is the willingness to trust that beneath all of the pain, uncertainty, doubt, fear, anger, futility, injustice, and suffering, that seems to be all that existence is. There is something more, something deeper, something even more real, even if the evidence for it is not readily available. And that something is love. That something is God, who is love. That something is the real reason, the real place, the real mission of our existence. That having been created in love, through love, and for love, we might become love ourselves. Since it is so much easier to see and know all of the realities of existence that are not love than to see and know love as the essence of everything, I'm going to offer three exercises in this episode that might help us to remember love, feel love, know love, and in remembering, feeling, and knowing love, discover more and more of the truth about the one who loves and who has created us in, through, and for love. 
The first of these exercises is a simple meditation involving deep breathing and a guided image. It involves breathing in deeply for five full seconds, holding that breath for five full seconds, and then exhaling that breath for five full seconds. The image accompanying the breathing in is to imagine that you are breathing in love. While holding the breath, I'll ask you to imagine love holding you with the instruction, let love hold you. And the image to accompany exhaling for five full seconds is to breathe out love into the world. We will do this three times and just allow the exercise to be an experiential reminder of the truth that is often hidden beneath pain and fear, worry and stress, struggle and doubt. Namely, that we exist in love, through love, and for love. So let's do this. Take a deep breath and breathe in love. Hold the breath and let love hold you. Exhale and breathe out the love into the world. Again, breathe in love. Let love hold you. Breathe out love into the world. One more time. Breathe in love. Let love hold you. Breathe out love into the world. Hopefully, at the very least, that exercise has us calmer and more centered. The second exercise is one of my favorite reflection papers to assign to my students. The directions are, assume it is true that God is love. Based on your experience of being loved yourself or witnessing love by others, describe what God, who is love, must be like. I then get to read some beautiful and touching essays about the love of grandparents for grandchildren parents for children, children for parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, siblings with special needs. The list goes on, but reveals that there may well be more love being beautifully and sacrificially shared in our world than we ever know from observing the surface of things. When I do this exercise myself, I look at the love between my parents which is the source of my greatest privilege in life. I am one of the lucky ones, blessed to be the child of two people who were in love with each other, loved each other, and so were able to love me with a depth and a power for which I am truly grateful and by which I am deeply humbled. Here's how I tell their story when I have the chance. My mother died in 1992 after she and my father had been married for 41 years. 
She died after an eight-year battle with Alzheimer's disease. One of the effects of her sickness and death is that I never really had the chance to know her as an adult. However, it, it is an opportunity that I have had with my father. As a result of that opportunity, there is one thing that I know for sure about my parents' marriage, and that is that my mother was the love of my father's life. She was his deepest and most abiding passion. That remained true until his death just two years ago. When I was growing up, my father was the primary income provider, and for the most part, my mother was the primary caregiver in the home. However, there was no clear division of labor in our house or expected roles for each parent to play. My father was just as likely to do housework and cook as my mother. My mother handled the household finances and bill paying, even though my father was an accountant. A hard and fast rule in our house was that my mother was not allowed to do the dishes after dinner. My father insisted on washing the dishes and enlisted myself or one of my three siblings to dry them. This is, was his time to talk to us and find out about our lives. For the most part, this was excruciating since he washed one fork at a time. I grew up really not wanting to ever disappoint my parents. My mother would be disappointed in me and my siblings if we failed to do our best stand up for ourselves or allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. My father would lose his temper if he ever noticed us being disrespectful to his wife. He would be disappointed if we were dishonest, too extravagant, or appearing to be involved in activities that might be dangerous with drugs, alcohol, or sex. My mother's greatest desire in life was to have children, and she had four. When my youngest brother was no longer needing the constant care of a mother, she returned to her profession of nursing part-time with the full support of my father. The biggest source of conflict between my parents was the spending of money. Both were actually quite frugal, but my father had no interest in ever going into debt. They had a mortgage on their house, but everything else they bought, they paid for in cash. The house was the real source of trouble. My mother wanted to move to a larger house in a nicer neighborhood, Throughout my late childhood and adolescence, they were always looking but never bought, probably because the financing was more than my dad could take. They never moved until my dad was transferred from Philadelphia to Los Angeles when I was in college and my older siblings were grown up and gone. Whenever my mother was asked if she would ever consider divorcing my father, her answer was always quick. Divorce never. Murder often. Sex was never talked about openly in our house, even among my siblings. My parents were affectionate with each other with kisses, hello, and goodbye. I do remember watching with discomfort one morning when my father kissed my mother with more passion and affection than I had ever seen before. It took me about 15 years of reflecting on that memory before it occurred to me that it might have been a continuation of the previous night's activity. Both of my parents were devout practicing Catholics. Sunday Mass was never an option and all of us participated very actively in the parish and school activities. Our faith was actively taught and practiced in our home as well. The family rosary was prayed every night in the living room. And while we did not have to participate in this, we couldn't do anything else while it was going on except homework in our rooms. So we did participate. While my parents didn't question a lot about the teachings of the church, our schools and teachers did. 
our dinner table in the late 1960s and early 1970s was a lively forum for theological debate, even though my father could get pretty upset by some of the heresies being espoused by his children. My parents were living in California when my mother began to show signs of losing her memory and ability to do tasks she had done millions of times. When it became obvious that she could not be alone, my father took an early retirement package and became a full-time nurse, housekeeper, laundry doer, and companion to someone who was unable to be a companion to him. There was never a possibility that she would be institutionalized as long as he was healthy enough to do all that needed to be done. I suppose that it is one thing to witness sexual affection between one's parents, but I know how humbling, how powerful, how moving it was to watch my father change my mother's diaper about a thousand times over the course of that eight-year journey. I saw there the evidence that made it clear that she was more important to him than anything or anyone in the world. What was clear to me was that he wanted to love her and that you couldn't entice him away from her with anything at all. When I preached at her funeral, I started my homily with the words, the greatest gift that a father can give to his children is to love their mother. And I know that I can speak for my brothers and sister when I say, thanks, Dad. I repeated that when I preached at his funeral 26 years later. So what does that tell me about what God who is love must be like? The unquestioning faithfulness and sacrifice? The never-in-doubt awareness that what love demands is just what you do? The reality that there is nothing more important than to do what love asks of us, because to do otherwise would be completely untrue to ourselves. So I invite you to give some thought to where, how, and in whom you have experienced or witnessed love. What does that tell you about where, how, and why you exist, and for what? The third exercise that I'd like to offer is a guided reflection of memory, based loosely on the story of how Jesus fed thousands by the multiplication of just five loaves and two fish. After everyone had had their fill, he asked the disciples to go through the crowd and collect whatever remained left over. And they collected 12 baskets filled with fragments. I imagine that the, these fragments were in all sorts of brokenness, but they were still bread and could still feed and nourish us, especially when we are particularly hungry. The idea here is that love is not always, if ever, perfect and whole, but it is still love and it can still nourish us even if it can't be whole, complete, intact, or forever. Love can't always be brought to completion for all kinds of reasons that may be painful, but that does not mean that it is not or was not love. Our lives may be filled with lots of unloving, traumatic, abusive, painful experiences that get the majority of, the, of attention from our minds and hearts. But there may also be, even in the midst of terror and mistreatment, some one person or even many people who saw us as worthy of being cherished, even if others saw nothing of the sort. So this exercise is an invitation to walk through various periods of our lives 
collecting love, even in its fragmented, broken, incomplete ways, and gathering the pieces into baskets. It involves walking through experiences that might not seem or even be a place one would look for love. But if there be any love there, we do not need to leave it behind. And there may be lots of fragments of love from relationships that could not be what we might have hoped they could be. Relationships we regret starting or ending. Losses of people who loved us and whom we loved. But even though there is sadness and regret to be walked through, there is still love that can be gathered into our baskets to nourish us. So let's begin with our earliest memories of being loved. Who comes to mind as those who found you to be delightful and worthy of being cherished and rejoiced in? It may not be who it was supposed to be, and that may be painful. But whose face do you see smiling at you? Whose caress and kiss comforted you? Whose hugs made you know that you mattered and were safe? Gather the fragments. Next, recall your childhood and who was in it. Parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, Playmates, who among them do you remember as loving you? Gather the fragments. Go back to the start of your school days and walk through your classrooms and playgrounds and collect the fragments of love left for you by teachers who cared, classmates who became friends, by those who offered protection, direction, inspiration, and comfort when you were sad or injured or afraid. Gather the fragments. Move on to middle school when relationships really started to get complicated. Who could you depend on? Perhaps there were friendships that filled you with joy, but ended sadly or badly, leaving love broken, but still there. Who pushed, pulled, called you out of yourself to risk and to grow? Gather the fragments. Walk through high school and even more complications. Recall your crushes, infatuations, longings, dates, along with the friendships that helped us explore ourselves, find our boundaries, and express ourselves. Gather the fragments. Do the same for college and young adulthood, adding in peers and colleagues, co-workers and roommates, friend groups and romances. Gather the fragments.
how has love found you and how have you found love in adulthood? Marriage and partnerships. Even those that did not live up to their promised and hoped for course. Maybe places where love might be in fragments, but it is still love. Parenting. Grandparenting. And of course, the loss and sadness that comes when we lose those whom we love. Revealing what love really is. Gather the fragments. Take your time doing this sometime. I went through that very fast. Add details, add time periods, so that it's true to your life. Maybe write some things down. But feel the feelings evoked by your walking through life, collecting fragments of love, along with some beautiful, full, and delicious loaves of love. Then maybe call back to mind that you exist in love, through love, and for love. And notice how you are just where, what, and how you might be supposed to be. Peace and blessings on all of you.